0: Um, So please take advantage of that. But before we get tonight, we're going to get through this morning, Um, and we're going to be in John 6. I don't know if you've noticed, I know those of you with kids have, when you have young um, children or infants, you can't go anywhere um, without having to pack up pretty much your entire house. Um, It doesn't matter how long or short the trip is, you've got to take all kinds of bags with you, um, with diapers and foods and blankets and, and spare outfits and I have noticed a law of this. Um, I don't know if you guys have noticed it. Maybe it's just my experience. But every time I remember to pack a spare outfit, there's nothing happens. Nothing occurs. Um, there's no hiccups or anything. And every time you forget to pack a spare outfit, well, then um, that's when you always need one. But uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was packing up for a trip. And, and my daughter, turned. she's turned two now. And she's beginning to be a little bit observant. She begins to notice things around her. And she's picked up on now. When I start packing these bags that we're going to go somewhere. Um, and so it clicks in her that she's going to add her own list to this bag. And so she goes and gets stuff and brings it for me to throw in the bag. And the issue is that her list never matches my list. Um, so today, this particular day a couple of weeks ago, um, I knew we were we were headed for conflict. Um, because I was packing her bag and she comes up carrying to me this, this DVD. Um, you see, we have... One of those portable DVD players you can strap to the front seat and she can watch in the car. And this thing has been a blessing and a curse. It's been a blessing in that long trips have just been saved. Um, it's amazing to have peace in the car again on these long trips. But the, the problem is that I, on short trips, I don't like her to use it. I don't want her watching TV a lot. And so on short trips, we just, it's off. We don't use it. And in Hattie's mind, every trip is worthy of a DVD, you know. Um, she doesn't get this, this standard. And so she brought her DVD to me that day, and she said, Daddy, you want to watch this in the car? And I said, well, now, Hattie, I don't know if you've noticed, but this is a short trip, and on short trips, we, we don't watch uh, movies. And I, I have no idea why I try to appeal to reason with a two-year-old. Um, but I do. And she says, Daddy, want to watch in the car? And so I brace myself, and I say, listen... It's no, we're not watching it, okay, you cannot take it. And now I'm fully prepared for whatever reaction might occur and whatever punishment I may have to levy. Um, But to my surprise, she just calmly turns and sets the movie on the coffee table. And then she reaches her arms out to me as if she wants a hug. So I bend down, I scoop her up, and she gives me a hug, and I'm overwhelmed with the amount of pride I feel for having such a restrained, well-behaved little girl. And I'm getting ready to tell her how proud I am of her when she pulls back and she Cups my face with her hands This is what she does when she has something really important to say And she looks me square in the eye And she says But daddy I need to watch it (laughs) Conniving little thing And it struck me later as, As I thought about it How Hattie has absolutely no clue What her needs are None You know we might think that uh, with our human survival instincts, we would be born with this knowledge, but at least using the sample size of my one child, we apparently aren't, because not only has she out of her own mouth, has she told me that she needs to watch a movie, but also that she doesn't need to eat, she doesn't need to sleep and she doesn't need to drink water. So she has no idea what her needs are. But let me ask you: what do you need? What do you really need? Now I know at first glance this seems like an easy question because I know the list that's popping your head right now. You need oxygen, you need air to breathe, you need food, you need clothing, you need shelter, etc. That, that somewhere along the path your basic needs for survival have been revealed to you and you're aware of them. We're starting a, a series today that's going to take us all the way into Easter. In this series we're going to look at a number of statements made by Jesus Christ. And all these statements begin with this two-word phrase, I am. Jesus says, I am, and then he fills in the blank. And in each one of these, he makes a claim about his, in his identity. But also, in, in the context of each one of these statements, Jesus seems to question popular notions of thought. And today we're going to look at one of these in John chapter 6. And in, in doing so, Jesus is going to call into question what our needs really are. Now just for a little background, the start of John 6, Jesus is on the far shore of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, and he's up on a hillside and he sees a large crowd coming towards him. And John tells us, he gives us the download, that, that Jesus ends up taking five loaves of bread and two fish and he feeds this crowd of over 5,000 people until everyone had their full and there were actually 12 baskets of food left over. That somehow, some way, after Jesus blessed the bread and broke it and the fish, that every time they reached in the basket there was more and more and more. This is one of Christ's most famous miracles, and then that same night, in the same chapter, John chapter 6, that same night, his disciples get in the boat, but Jesus doesn't join them. And while they're out in the Sea of Galilee, a big storm comes, and Jesus' disciples are are terrified, they're afraid for their lives, And and then Jesus actually comes out walking on the water, John tells us. He walks across the top of the water until he reaches the boat, and then he steps in, and immediately the boat is on the shore. So for the entire first half of John 6, John is showing us the miraculous power of Jesus Christ from the feeding of 5,000 where Jesus' power of endless provision is displayed to his power over nature and the laws of physics as he actually walks on water. John is trying to display to us the divinity of Jesus Christ, that he was God, because these are not the powers of a man. They just aren't. So starting in verse 25 of John 6, it's now the next day, the next morning. And John tells us that that this crowd, this crowd of 5,000 from the day before, they've now made it to the other side of the lake, and we discover that they've been looking for Jesus since the moment they noticed that he was gone. And when they get to him in verse 25, they ask, when did you get over here? And Jesus' answer to them is, is a little peculiar at first. Look at verse 26 of John 6. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Now see, first off, some of you may have noticed Jesus uses the phrase I tell you the truth a lot. Throughout the Gospels he leads into some of his teachings and answers with that kind of saying. Depending on your translation it might say verily, verily or verily I say to you or truly I say to you I tell you the truth. But he uses this phraseology and a lot of times what always happens when Jesus says this is that number one he's about to say something profound and he realizes it. So he's kind of building it up but number two what I've noticed when he says this is he's about to reveal a truth that his audience hasn't yet grasped and so when Jesus says I tell you the truth he's about to say something here that the people he's talking to they haven't realized it yet he knows it's true but they don't And so what does he say Jesus says you're not coming after me you're not following me you're not looking for me because you saw a miracle You're coming after me because I fed you. You're here, Jesus says, because you're hungry again. You see, these people weren't on a spiritual journey of enlightenment. They weren't even looking for an entertaining show of miracles. They just wanted another free meal. Which is why I can easily decide that this was a crowd of 5,000 college kids. You feed them, they'll come, trust me. Jesus continues to verse 27. Verse 27. He looks at him and says, do not work for food that, will spo- that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. You know what he's saying? He's saying, listen, you guys are so close. I mean, think of this group. This group was literally in pursuit of Jesus. They were looking for him. They were coming after him. They were following where he went. But the reason they were doing so, well, the reason was for a fulfillment of a f- physical earthly need. They were coming to Jesus, yes, but for all the wrong reasons. And Jesus is saying, you guys are looking for another meal. And I could give it to you, sure. I really could. But you'd just be hungry again by lunch. And if you would just realize who it is that you're coming to, who it is that you're dealing with, who you're actually talking to right now, then you'd ask me for the bread that endures to eternal life. Jesus tells them, I can give you so much more than a meal. You know, I wonder when we, when we come to Jesus, when we approach the throne of grace in our prayers to him, what do we come looking for? What is it that we actually come looking for? Do we appeal to Jesus only for the goods of this world? I mean, do we lay before him only our own agendas? Do we present to him only the circumstances we would like him to change, and by the way, give him a nice little prescription of how we want him to change it? Or when we come... Do we ever ask him what he might be offering us? Do we ever contemplate his agenda, his purpose, or his will? See, Jesus looks at this group and says, Guys, you're working for food that will spoil. Your efforts are all focused on the temporary things of life. Your minds are consumed with the things of this world. You're simply not looking outside yourself. To which they ask a great question in verse 28. I say, all right, Jesus, so what must we do to do the works that God requires then? We understand we're working for food that spoils, so what is it? What are are the works that God requires? See, they're getting closer. They're not there yet, but they're getting closer. They're still in the mindset of them having to earn it. They're still in a mindset that they are somehow capable of accomplishing works that God will deem good enough for eternal life or that God will put them in good standing with him. So even though they're not quite there yet, it's still a great question, and Jesus has a greater answer. Look at verse 29. Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one that he has sent. You really want to know the work of God? Do you really want to know what God requires of you? Do you really want to know what your purpose for existence is? Do you really want to know why you were placed on this earth? It's to believe in the one that God has sent. So you may have heard this before. but do you realize how profound this statement is? This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying that at the end of your life. When you stand before your creator and God almighty. He's going to be interested in just one thing. And he's not going to ask you how good of a person you were. He's not going to weigh your good deeds against your bad deeds on some sort of justice scale. He won't be interested in your successes or your accomplishments. He'll give no thought to how much money you made. He won't ask you if you left the earth a better place than you found it. He won't even ask you if you ever went to church or if you ever prayed to him. All he'll be interested in is one thing. What did you do with Jesus Christ? Did you believe in the one that I sent to you? Because you see, the truth of the matter is it's not about you it's not about you and we should all be encouraged with that it's not about what we do with the one life we've been given because if it was up to us we'd all fail every one of us because God's standard is perfection and we cannot meet it so in his love and in his grace God sent Jesus Christ his son he sent us Jesus who said he came to offer us food that would lead to eternal life And when he died in our place and he came to pay the price for all the times that we've sinned and all the times we've fallen short of perfection, Jesus Christ took our penalty upon him so that if we would just stop working for food that would spoil and not last and if we would just accept what he's offering us, we could live forever in heaven for eternity with the one who made it possible. That's what Jesus tells them. And to be honest, the crowd's response to this leaves just a little bit to be desired. Because in verse 30, they asked Jesus what miraculous sign he's going to show them that they might believe what he is saying. I mean, really? The afternoon before, the evening before, he just took five loaves of bread and two fish and fed all 5,000 of them with it. And now they want to see a miracle from him in order to prove what he's saying is true? See, friends, right here is another prime example of what time and time again has proven true in scripture and in life. Miracles and shows of power by God simply do not lead to faith. They don't. Far too long, humanity has decided that if they saw a miracle, it would lead to faith and it just doesn't happen. How many times have you heard someone say, if God is real, why doesn't he just open up the skies and tell us what he wants? You want to know why? It wouldn't work. It wouldn't work. Countless times in scripture, miraculous signs and powerful miracles occur without ever resulting in true lasting faith for those who witness them. This group is just another prime example. So if your faith is contingent upon seeing miracles, if your walk with God is completely dependent on receiving answers to prayers in the ways that you would like to see them answered, if you are under the notion that seeing is actually believing, then scripture points to the truth that maybe you don't really have faith at all. Because if even, even if you got that answer, or even if you saw that miracle, or even if you saw that power on display, on its own, it would never be enough to create true, lasting faith. This is why in Hebrews we're told that faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what? Certain of what we do not see. So the crowd asks Jesus for a miracle, and it gets even more preposterous in verse 31. They make a suggestion. They say, show us a miracle that we might believe you. For example, by the way, when Moses led our our people through the desert and there was no food to eat, bread fell from heaven and they had their fill. Jesus wasn't kidding. This group is really hungry, aren't they? You know, of all the miracles they could choose from, they go right to the eating the food one. But listen to Jesus' response. Verse 32, he says, I tell you the truth. Don't miss it. There it is again. I tell you the truth. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I tell you the truth, he says. Here comes the truth that he's aware of, but they're not. He looks at him, he says, You know that manna, that bread from heaven we're always talking about? That wasn't the best stuff, it wasn't the real deal. It came from God, yeah, it fell from the sky, but it wasn't the real bread from heaven. You see, that bread was used for the purpose of fulfilling a temporary physical need. That's why it needed to keep coming six days a week, because what it provided, it never lasted. But the real bread, Jesus says, the real bread comes from God. And it has one purpose, to give life to the world. True, vibrant, lasting, eternal life. This is the stuff that does not spoil. This is the stuff that can never be taken away. And so the crowd in verse 34, verse 34, they make a simple request. Sir, from now on, give us this bread. You know, maybe, maybe they're still hungry. Maybe they just think that, that, that there is bread that will keep them from ever feeling physically hungry again. Maybe they're further along in this process and this is a genuinely see, spiritually seeking question, but whatever the case, they still don't recognize what or who this bread from heaven is. And so Jesus just comes right out and tells him, look at verse 35. Then Jesus declared, this is a statement of authority. He didn't say, he didn't answer, he declared. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never thirst, never be thirsty. Jesus looks him square in the eye and says, Listen, you're looking at him. I'm the gift from heaven. I was sent to give life to this world. And if anyone comes to me and anyone believes in me, they'll never go hungry and they'll never be thirsty again. So what exactly is Jesus talking about here? Well, first and we cannot miss it. He's claiming to be God. As we move forward in this, in this series, we're going to look at how almost everyone in our culture and everyone throughout history, they all have their own explanation, their own idea of just who Jesus Christ was. And the modern push is to deny his divinity and focus on the parts of Jesus that are more palatable, more easily digestible for everyone. Because it's just so much easier to stand in front of a group of people and say that Jesus was a good guy. It's so much easier to say he was a role model that we should all look up to. It's so much easier to say, man, what a great teacher. You see, the only issue with that is that he never claimed to be those things. Jesus himself never said that's who he is. Here and in other places, he is claiming to be God. Let's just take the sample size of the few short verses we've read this morning. He says that he is the Son of Man. He says that he is the one the Father has placed his seal of approval on. He says that he is sent from heaven. He says that he alone gives life to the world. And he says that he is the bread of life that fulfills all hunger and all thirst. Jesus is saying, and we'll see this time and time again, that he is just not like every other option out there. They're not all equal. And he doesn't say it to disparage anyone. It's just that what Jesus Christ offers, no one else can offer. That's the truth of the matter. What Jesus offers, you cannot get from any other place. You cannot get from any other faith. And you cannot get from any other person. See, the Bible points to the truth that each and every one of us were created with a a need and a longing to connect with God. That God placed within us a longing for eternity and a longing to connect with our creator and find our purpose. And until we enter into a relationship with the God who created us, we can never find true lasting joy, peace, fulfillment, satisfaction, or purpose. And this truth has been on display time and time again because when the masks are revealed, the philosophies of this world result in absolutely no satisfaction. It's why throughout history, people have expressed their longing for more. Time and time again, people at the top of the mountain have become so disenfranchised with life that they are depressed or even worse. A lot of rich, successful people end up taking their lives or so depressed. Others go their entire life with this burning lack of satisfaction and joy. And occasionally, just occasionally, one of them will be honest enough to admit it. Being in Indiana, there likely aren't many Tom Brady fans in here this morning. At least there better not be just kidding but you see by the world standard by all definitions of success outside of scripture Tom Brady is it he is though he played college ball at Michigan he was widely doubted and unheralded by pro scouts and finally in the sixth round the next to last round of the draft the England Patriots took a flyer on him and just took him they selected him they didn't sign him to a big contract they had no plans to play him Until one game when their starting quarterback, Drew Bledsoe, was knocked out with an injury. And they didn't have anybody on the bench left other than Tom Brady. And so they threw him into action. that season, his first as a starter, he led the Patriots to the Super Bowl. And then won the Super Bowl against the highly favored Rams. He was thrown into instant fame overnight and winning in success just kept coming. He started dating Hollywood actresses. He won, not one, but two more Super Bowls. He got endorsements deals worth millions of dollars. He's now signed two huge contracts to which he will earn over $100 million in his pro football career, and he's widely praised as being one of the greatest quarterbacks ever. He, you see, is the definition of the American dream. He, through his own effort and hard work, worked his way up through the ranks. When given his shot, he hit it big, and now he's the winner. Now he's one of the best athletes in the world, and by the way, He's married to a Brazilian supermodel who makes more money than he does. You see, in the eyes of the world, in the scope of our culture, in the context of the American dream, Tom Brady is the greatest success story there is, because what more could anyone ever ask for? Well, he sat down for an interview with 60 Minutes one evening for a story about his rise to success and fame. It was meant to be a puff piece to celebrate Tom Brady and all his accomplishments and how great his life was. And right in the middle of it, they asked him how great his life was, if he was truly happy. Only his answer was not what they were expecting to hear. Brady paused and then looked at the camera and said, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still feel like there's something greater for me out there? I mean, maybe a, a lot of people would say, "Hey, man, this this is what it is. You've accomplished your dreams. You've met your goals. You're rich and famous and successful. This is what it is." But me, well, I think, gosh, there's got to be more to life than this. The interviewer was a little stunned, but then he asked, "Well, what's the answer then, Tom?" To which Brady responded, "I wish I knew." I wish I knew. Jesus says, the answer is me. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty again. Because there is a longing in your soul that money simply cannot buy enough things to fulfill. There is a void in your heart that no number of friendships or dating relationships or spouses can fulfill. There is a desire in your gut that no amount of successes or conquests can ever quench. There is a longing in your being that no amount of pleasure or recreation or experience will ever satisfy. Because unless you plug into your Creator, unless you enter into a relationship with your God, nothing will truly satisfy you. Nothing. And you might have breath in your lungs. And your heart may be beating, but the Bible says that you are dead. You are not experiencing true life. Jesus says, I'm the bread from heaven. I came to give you life. And if you come to me and you believe in me and trust in my death to make the payment for your sins, you give yourself over to me, then that longing in your heart that's never been, been fulfilled, no matter what you tried, that hungering and thirsting that you could never satisfy your own, I'll take it away. I'll take it away because Jesus says, I can offer you what no one else can. I am your one need. Stop chasing after the food that spoils and will not last or satisfy. You don't even need that, even if you think you do. You don't even need that. You need me. Once that's in place, everything else will fall into place expanded on this in, in Matthew 6 when Jesus tells us that we shouldn't even worry about the food we're going to eat or the clothes that we'll wear he points out that the birds don't store up goods for themselves and yet our heavenly father feeds feeds them he points out the lilies of the field they don't fret or worry about clothing yet God clothes them in beauty every year and what Jesus is saying is that don't you understand God is much bigger than our needs for survival that when it comes down to it we have just one need and Jesus Christ is the object of everything for which we hunger and thirst. He is the manna that the Father sent. He is the bread that satisfies our souls. Which I guess leads to one last question before we close. If this is true and it is, then why does it seem so many believers in Christ are still hungering? Why are so many followers of Christ still wrecked by desire well perhaps we are hungering for the wrong kind of bread perhaps we are no different than the crowds standing before Jesus in John chapter 6 because I wonder, I truly wonder how much of our lives and time is invested in working for food that spoils and will not last I really wonder how much of our lives and time and effort is focused on doing the work of God believing in the one that he has sent And so the question that we have to ask is this, is do we really actually believe him? Do we actually believe what Jesus has to say? I mean, how often do I worry about the things of this world? When a bill arrives in the mail that I just wasn't expecting, it wasn't in the budget, I wasn't counting on, do I fret and worry? When things happen in my life that that don't go just the way I plan them out, do I stress out? You see, it begs the question, when I have those reactions, it begs the question, just where am I getting my bread? Through whom or what am I actually getting my bread? You see, sure, probably in this room, a good portion of us have asked Jesus to forgive our sins and we feel like we're trying to follow him, but is he, is he our source for bread and fulfillment in everything, in every single area of life? Or if I'm honest, do I put a little trust and security in my career? Is the amount of peace or faith I have in direct proportion to how large the number is in my bank account? Or is my faith in my God? Is my Lord my schedule or my calendar or my plans or is my Lord Jesus Christ? There's really only one way to know. If he asked for all of it today, every last bit of it, would you give it to him? Where is it that you are getting bread that you don't want to trust God with? Deep down for real, if he asked you today to leave your job with absolutely no promise of finding another one, would you walk out and do it? If he asked you to take your calendar and clear it totally for the next seven days and pray and seek him as to what you would do with every hour of your week, would you do it? Could you do it? If he wanted you to empty your bank account, your college fund, and your IRA all the way to zero and give it to someone else, if he wanted you to just hand all your material possessions to someone else, would you trust him with that? Or would you in a really well-meaning way say, well, God would never want me to be stupid. He'd never want me to be, to be put in a position where I couldn't provide for my family. He, he would never ask for that much. To which I would like to ask, which verse in the Bible is it that we are told to not be stupid for Jesus? Who exactly do we think has been providing for our family all this time? And if it all belongs to God, which it does, why couldn't he just ask for the whole thing? And before you get all squirmy and upset, I'm not talking about money right now. What Jesus is wanting us to ask is just where is it that we placed our faith and trust in? Because there's a difference between trusting Jesus for my eternity and trusting Jesus with my everything. Charles Swindoll has wrote an amazing book called So You Want to Be Like Jesus. And in the last chapter of the book, he writes about an exchange he witnessed between his father and his brother. And to set up the story, Swindoll clues his readers in on, on the way that his father looked at the world. His father was very responsible. He was a planner. He liked leaving nothing to chance. He was a believer, Swindoll writes, but, but he didn't understand the life of faith. You see, to his dad, faith was something you exercised when your first three backup plans fell through and you had nothing else to fall back on. But his brother Orville, well, he was wired just a little bit differently, we'll just say. On this particular day that, that Swindoll writes about, Orville drove up to his father's house in an old Chevy with four of the slickest tires you'd ever seen. He includes that detail because that was something their father would always do. He would go out and inspect the boys' tires when they came to visit. He would look at their gas tank to see if they had enough gas for the trip. And on this occasion, Orville just returned from some short-term missions work in Mexico, and he'd come home for one reason. He came home to get his wife and his kids and take them on a long trip down to Buenos Aires in the heart of South America. And at the dinner table, both Charles and Orville wondered when their dad would start his line of questioning. And shortly after dinner it began. So, son, how much money do you have for your long trip? Ah, oh, dad, don't worry about it. We'll be fine. He wasn't getting off that easy. Son, how much money do you have for your trip? How much money is in your wallet right now? Orville just smiled at his dad and said, well, I don't have any money in my wallet. Well, how much money do you have? I mean, you're getting ready to go to South America. You're taking your wife and your kids. How much money you got? So Orville reached into his pocket and he dug out a quarter. And he set it on its edge, on his end of the table, and pushed it. And it rolled all the way across the table into his father's hand. His dad screamed, is that all you got? which over replied, yeah, isn't that exciting? See, the work of God is this, to believe in the one that he has sent. And the moment that we stop relying on ourselves, the moment that we stop trusting in our jobs, the moment we stop making our own plans, the moment we stop finding our security in a dollar figure, that's the moment we get it. It's the moment that we realize that we are no longer searching for bread anywhere else than Jesus Christ. And you see, those whose lives are reoriented around him, those who desire nothing else but him, they will truly never hunger again. By the way, you might want to know, Orville and his family served in Buenos Aires for more than 30 years. Not once did they ever go hungry. They were always provided for. So, where is it? Where is it that you were looking for bread other than Him? What is it that you have placed your trust and security in other than Jesus Christ? And lastly, have you ever come to Jesus? Have you ever believed in Him? Have you ever accepted the bread of life? You see, Jesus stands alone. And that he alone can satisfy our spiritual hunger. He alone can meet our greatest and really only need. Because Jesus Christ is not our means to get bread. He is the bread of life. And when we stop looking for satisfaction anywhere else, when we stop trusting anything else, when we come to him hungry, and when we follow him by faith with nothing else to rely on, he provides and we are filled. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that for all the different ideas and theories out there, that Jesus Christ went ahead and just told us who he is. God, we thank you that your son is the bread of life. And so first, Lord, we pray for any who have not realized that, those who in Jesus' own words haven't come to him and believed in him, that they may come today and quench that spiritual hunger that they felt every single day of their life. That it might finally be fulfilled. And so, God, for the rest of us who who claim to follow Him, may we really search through our lives, may we really inventory our possessions and realize what is it that we would hold on to if you asked for it? What is it that we're leaning on other than you? What is it that we're trusting in other than you? May we surrender those to you today. May we come to you hungry and let you fill us. We pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.
1: to die oh when i i come to die and when i i come to
2: If you guys could stand with us and sing this last song, Um, it's called Hungry. all. Thank you, uh, Pastor Brett, that powerful word, the ministry of the word of God. Um, Will you come back tonight? How many will come back tonight? Thank you. Many of you will be serving, I know, on this campus, our little ones. Um, But at 6.30, we'll have a very special time with Frank and Marie Drown, folks who really embody everything Brett brought to us this morning in so many ways. And then at 7.30 in the Welcome Center, another kind of question and answer time and hear their story. So lots of opportunity for you to get a full dose of um, blessing from Frank and Marie. And they're going to be in the main foyer as you leave this morning, so you can greet them there. And uh, there's some great things for you to kind of take a look at that they've brought with them. So let's bow together before the Lord. Father, thank you for this time. We are really grateful just for your presence here for the gift that you gave us today uh, from your word. Um, We've all been so encouraged and challenged today. Um, Would you now go with us, help us to be um, givers of this life that is ours in Christ. Bring us back tonight, Lord, also with a ready heart um, to once again be encouraged by you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed. Thank you.